0: I love you, man. Pastor Dwayne, everyone. So you call clapping someone off the stage. That's what that was. That was all that that was about. Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. Welcome back after your long travels. uh, Good to see uh, everyone here today. And we're going to be finishing up the seventh of the seven letters uh, to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 this morning. And um, a hard one today. Um, so if you were here last week or the weeks pre- previous to this one, and you know that we've been doing this series, congratulations on showing up today, because this is a tough one today. Like, this is hard. Um, but you're here now, and I'm not planning on praying in the next few minutes, so you can't really escape while I'm praying. Uh, you're really stuck here now for the next little while as we look at this. So I want to start with just a, a kind of thinking about Western society, but the prosperity that we enjoy in Western society over the last, or have enjoyed in, in Western society over the last century or more, um, has not been to our advantage spiritually. All of the prosperity that we have enjoyed in, in Western society has not been to our advantage spirit, spiritually. You just think about it. We have endless consumer goods. We can buy anything we want, all the useful things, all the useless things, uh, endless consumer goods, plentiful food from all over the world is in our grocery stores. We have the ability to travel. We have beautiful homes in which to live. We have wonderful cars in which to drive. We have communication um, all over the world readily available to us. Uh, We have entertainment of all kinds. We could fill uh, our entire day, every day, um, uh, throughout an entire year with entertainment and never exhaust it. We have advancements in healthcare. Uh, We have political stability and have had for generations provided by our democracies, we are rich. We need to know this. We are rich like no other generation in the history of the world. That's what we have in Western society, and that prosperity has led to a very feeble Christianity. We are living out a very feeble Christianity. And in the last of these uh, seven letters, Jesus writes a scathing, a scathing letter to the church in Laodicea. And he calls out their self-sufficiency. And what is unique about this letter is there are no, no commendations whatsoever. Jesus looks at this church and he sees nothing in it, not even the slightest thing worth praising them for. There's no commendation, only condemnation in this letter. And we're going to hear, as we go through this, I'm, I'm fair warning, we're going to hear some very hard things up front in this message as we look at this letter. But on the back end of it, if we're listening, if our hearts are engaged, if we're really willing to believe the things that we're hearing, there's limitless blessing available to us as well. if we're fully given to Jesus Christ. And so let me read this letter. And then we'll start working through um, what we have in front of us today. So this is Revelation 3, 14 uh, through to the end of the chapter, verse 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and to and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, in your notes and on the screen, Jesus is the uh, faithful and true witness, and so we must give ourselves fully uh, to Him. That is the uh, thrust of this letter. Now, before we get into the outline again, just a a little bit before we get there to set up what we're going to see, and of course, this is a... Seven point, if you've peeked at the notes, this is a seven point outline, but I promise you we'll move through it uh, very quickly here uh, today. So verse 14, we see the common greeting or the greeting that was common to all seven of the, of the churches and then the description of Jesus. Again, all of the letters, what Jesus was saying to each of the churches was based on this description of him. The full description of him is in chapter one, then pieces of that were used in all seven of the letters. He's described here as the words of the amen, the words of the so be it, the words of the this is the way it's going to be, the words of the let's make it happen. That's Jesus. He's the amen. He's further described as the faithful and true witness. He's never failing in the delivery of the good news that we so desperately need in the world today. And he does so as the beginning, uh, the source or the ruler or the authority of God's creation. And in this short description of him, we see a very strong affirmation of his divinity and of his his sovereignty over all things. Again, this is a sit-up-straight-and-listen kind of appeal and opening to the letter because Christ is speaking to them and he's speaking uh, to us with authority. This is Jesus Christ who is the, the son of God, he is, as the creed says, he's very God, a very God, begotten, not made. And he comes to us with the authority of God, saying to us, must give ourselves fully to him, first of all, notice, by setting aside our complacency. The core issue in Laodicea, the core issue, I believe, in many of our churches today, the core issue is self-sufficiency. We don't need God. The self-sufficiency leads to a complacency that is apparent to everyone often but ourselves. And that complacency leads to an abject failure, us being an abject failure as a church. This is the pattern we see in Laodicea. Jesus calls them out. He declares again his intimate knowledge, as we've seen in other letters, his intimate knowledge of their condition. He says, verse 15, rather, I know your works. I know all about you. I'm intimately acquainted with what's going on in your life. And then he adds this metaphor. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. And he states his preference. I want you to be either cold or hot. And you're neither of those things. A little bit later on, he's going to say, in fact, they're lukewarm. If you're not cold or you're not hot, you're lukewarm. And it's important to understand here because some have misunderstood this metaphor. Jesus wants us to be cold or hot. We often think of those things in terms of the Christian life. Oh, you want to be a hot Christian who's on fire for Jesus. You don't want to be a cold Christian who's not on fire for him. That's not the metaphor here. The negative here is lukewarmness. The positive, what Jesus wants out of us, is either we're going to be a hot Christian or a cold Christian, and both are awesome according to this metaphor. Say, so how, how, how can that be? I said, well, here, here it is. Do you like tea? How many people like tea here? Tea drinkers in the room? On a, on a hot, hot summer day. The kind of tea you want is iced tea with a wedge of lemon to refresh you in the midst of the hot day. Maybe on another day, a cold winter day, you want hot tea with a little honey in it. You want your tea hot, or you want your tea cold, but no one wants lukewarm tea. How many coffee drinkers in the room? Any coffee drinkers here? A few coffee drinkers? Coffee, how many people wouldn't be at church today if it wasn't for coffee? Let's just state it that way. A few honest people willing to admit that. Way more people confess that at nine o'clock coffee iced coffee is amazing hot coffee is amazing but lukewarm coffee just pour that stuff down the drain it's disgusting it's awful and that's what Jesus is saying christian i want you to be i want you to be tea and coffee that's what jesus is saying i want you to be hot or cold but i don't want you to be lukewarm one the cold refreshes us. One, the hot, comforts us. And Christians ought to be refreshing to those around them. They ought to be soothing and comforting to those around them. And the Laodiceans were neither. Now a lot has been made in, in further understanding why this particular metaphor and illustration for the Laodiceans. Research has shown that uh, Laodicea was part of a kind of a tri-city formation of three cities in the region. One, uh, Colossae, which was close by, and um, we have a letter in the New Testament to the church in, Colo- in Colossae. Um, and then Hierapolis was the other uh, city. The three of them together were this tri-city area. Laodicea was established an important city, but it had no water source of its own, and all of its water had to come in by aqueduct from another town about 10 kilometers away. Hierapolis, on the other hand, had hot springs, and people would go to Hierapolis to enjoy the baths and to find soothing comfort in the hot springs that came right out of the ground. Colossae was known for its fresh spring water, cool and fresh, coming out of the mountains. Those two cities were well known for the waters that came from them that were useless, useful and beneficial and desirable for people. And in the middle of that was Laodicea, with no water of its own, water flowing to them from an aqueduct that spent all of its time exposed to the sun, and by the time it arrived at the city was lukewarm. And so the people, as they're hearing this metaphor, are understanding it. It's making sense to them. Now, beyond that, to even simplify this, the ancient culture was so socially oriented. And Jesus wanted them to understand that even as a host, if you have somebody in your home and you're offering them a beverage and they're here for a meal and you're going to spend time with them, to plunk down a cup of lukewarm water was to fail as a host and was reprehensible in the culture. And so the call is to not be lukewarm, that as Christians we should be refreshingly cold or soothingly hot in our life and ministry, that we would bring something of value, something that blesses to the cities in which we live and to the people with whom we interact on a day-to-day basis. And that's something that we bring, of course, is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that gets us started on this this letter. We must be setting aside our complacency and, and, and setting aside our complacency, but also receiving his stern rebuke. And it is a stern rebuke here. Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, sermons very often get into word studies. And if we look at this word spit and we want to understand it, do you want to guess what the word actually is here? Because it's not spit. Sometimes the translators use like a nicer English word, but behind the nice English word is a more challenging, more graphic word. It's not actually spit. What is it? Anybody know? It's spew. It's vom- in fact, vomit, throw up, barf, retch, spew, hurl, chuck, puke, heave, technicolor yawn. I heard that one. That's ridiculous. Did I get them all? Did I get your favorite one, the one you use in your home? It's uncomfortable, isn't it, a bit to talk about that? But that's exactly the word. Jesus said, the water is so disgusting, you're so lukewarm as a church that I'm ready to vomit you out. And, and so the image is communicating rejection. That's what it's communicating. Spitting is just, I have a little extra phlegm in my mouth. That's just spitting. This that's not rejection. This is, I've consumed something, a beverage or food. I've consumed something. My stomach is not happy about it. It is now being rejected and coming back out. Everybody with me? Everybody got a good picture of this? Just be thankful that I I didn't put any screenshots up of anything to illustrate this. But it's intended. But this is, these are the words of Jesus dictated to John and given to a church. Jesus is intending for this to be as graphic as it can possibly be. He's intending to get their attention about the status of their Christian life. That these Laodicean believers were so disgusting to Jesus that he's rejecting them ready to vomit them out. And that's his rebuke. And no Christian would want to receive this letter. No church would want to receive a letter from Jesus where Jesus is saying, you're so disgusting to me that my stomach is turning and I'm ready to spew you out. And if you have any sense at all at this point that your life is growing lukewarm, then it would be in your best interest before Jesus vomits you out to consider carefully what he's saying to this church. If you've allowed your Christian life to become lukewarm, You're in danger of being unacceptable to Christ. Receive his rebuke before he spits you out. And instead, we must be, notice this next, doing a deep dive on our own sin. How can I avoid this? Do a deep dive on your sin. I've alluded to this already in the introduction in verse 17, lays out the sin of Laodicea, and he quotes them. Now they're saying... I'm rich. I'm I'm I've prospered. I have prosperity and I need nothing. The people in the church were wealthy and were talking about material wealth. And so they had grown to a place where they were no longer dependent on the Lord. They were, in fact, it wasn't just this church, they were a reflection of the city in which they lived. Laodicea was at the crossroads in Asia Minor, it was at the crossroads of all north, south, and east-west traffic in that part of Asia Minor. You remember in the first message in this series showed a map of the seven churches and they're in a, a postal route. Laodicea is the last stop. And if you head uh, just a little ways uh, west of here, you come back to Ephesus. That was the first city that received the letter. They were at this crossroads, and everybody flowed in and out of Laodicea. The city was founded in the third century BC after the time of Alexander the Great. It was a fertile area agriculturally. In fact, they uh, raised a lot of sheep, and there was a certain wool that was grown on these sheep that was jet black and highly desired in the ancient world. They had a significant population, a vibrant city life. Commercially, commercially, and spiritually, and politically. All commerce for the region channeled through their city. And so it was wealthy. And so wealthy, in fact, that in AD 60, an earthquake uh, rumbled through and, and leveled the city. The damage was extensive, but they were so wealthy that, unlike Philadelphia, when that happened, Philadelphia took the advantage of Rome saying, you know what, we'll just waive taxes for the next several years, and you can use that to rebuild the city. In in Laodicea, they told Rome, no thank you, we'll rebuild it ourselves. We have the wealth to do that. So they took no handouts from Rome. So self-sufficient. And the church had assumed the character of the city. Rich, prosperous, Needing nothing. Now if I could pause for a moment and talk about churches today and how we ought to be conducting ourselves so that we don't become this way. And talk a little personally about our church. Because the wise local church never puts itself in this position by retaining large stores of cash and other equity. It is certainly wise to have a level of reserves, some savings in the bank, a certain number of weeks of offerings that would cover you in case something crazy happens like a two-year pandemic. It's wise to have a small reserve and some savings. But to hold back too much, to create a vast reservoir of money, months and months of offerings held back from ministry, removes the need to be dependent on God and to pray. Tonight, we're going to have our annual members meeting, and what you'll see is that we have reserves, we have savings, but not a crazy amount, and that the offerings that you're giving week by week, the donations that you're making are being leveraged this week for the sake of the gospel, that ministry is going to happen this week and next week and is going to keep going as you continue to give and supply the need. We have some small reserves, but we are dependent on God. And we are leveraging what we have for the kingdom. And evidently, the church in Laodicea just had too much. Didn't need to pray. Didn't need to depend on God. Didn't have to wonder about whether they'd have enough money for the next week. The great tragedy today is uh, dead denominations. And some of you have come from other denominational traditions to be part of our Harvest family here, and you know that many of the historic denominations in Canada are certainly not what they used to be, denominations that were once firmly gospel-centered and are no longer gospel-centered, long ago abandoning the Word of God. And yet these denominations, these historic denominations retain massive land holdings and investments across the country. Many of the properties they owned are historic properties in the downtown core of of major Canadian cities. Properties worth millions, tens of millions of dollars. That equity artificially propping up what is dead. Giving the appearance of life, generating enough revenue from property and investments to carry on the semblance of ministry, but there's no life there. It is, it's weekend at Bernie's for these denominations. That's what it is. The body is propped up, stiff as a board. Did Jesus' commentary on that, verse 17 you're not even realizing that you're wretched. You're pitiable, he says. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You don't even realize it. It's the opposite of what you think you are. In fact, he says, you think you're all that, but you're wretched. People should be pitying you. You think you're rich when in fact you're poor. You're poor in the things that matter. Your bank accounts are fat. Your estate is huge. But you're poor in the things that matter. You think you have clarity about life and you know what it's all about, but you're actually blind. You think you've covered yourself with all this world offers, and Jesus says you're naked, clothed with shame, Now, to varying degrees, we all need to hear this. There might be some people here who are in a really good place with the Lord and keeping short accounts with Him, and you have a vibrant time with Him, and you're serving Him, and giving to Him, and you're sacrificing for Him. But most of us need to hear what's being said here because we're predisposed as human beings, even Christian redeemed human beings. We're predisposed to think, I'm good. I'm good. Jordan passed on this quote to me on Friday. He says, you will never, I love this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there's a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We simply don't want to believe, even though we've acknowledged we're sinners, we don't want to believe that we still have stuff to deal with. Deceiving ourselves. Now I love this next line. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. That's something you could think about several times this coming week, don't you think? We're all on very good terms with ourselves and can always put up with a good always put up a good case for ourselves. Now listen, all I'm I'm advocating for here is I I don't know where you're all at with the Lord. I know where I'm at with the Lord and you need to wrestle that through with Him. So all I'm advocating for is that we come to this letter to the Laodiceans and we ask ourselves individually some hard questions. It's never a bad idea to step back and ask God these things. God, could this be true of me? Spirit, Spirit, Show me how I've become self-sufficient so I'm no longer dependent on you. God, show me how I'm, I'm maybe more interested in comfort, in building wealth, or having status, being something or someone. God, open my eyes. I might be blind to some things here. God, cover my nakedness. I might not even realize That I'm bearing this shame. Ask God these questions. We must be accepting of His wise counsel. See this next in the notes. We we must be accepting of His wise counsel if we're gonna be full out for Jesus. I mean, He is, He's gonna offer us some counsel here, and He is, as has been established at the head of this letter. He is the faithful and true witness. He's the right person to go to for counsel. And in verse 18, he provides an antidote for each of their utter failures. He says, I counsel you. I'm laying this out for you. And I want you to buy three things from me, Jesus says. The first thing is gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. They think they're rich, and Jesus is saying, you're not rich. And by rich, he means rich toward God, Luke 12, 21. Or to expand it out with what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 and 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, we are wired, we are wired by our culture to build wealth for ourselves. We are told over and over again, build wealth, invest this way, save for retirement, retire early, buy these things for yourself. We are wired for wealth, securing our future, and it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's the management of it and the leveraging of it for the kingdom of God that's the question. How much, and it doesn't matter where you land in terms of wealth, how much of what we earn and what we have is being used for the eternal kingdom and how much is only for personal pleasure and the comforts of this life. No matter what your budget is or how much you have in the bank, or what kind of house you live in, you can ask that question. How much of what I have is for me, and how much of it is for the kingdom of God? Here's a second thing that Jesus says they need to buy. They need to buy this gold refined by fire, but also they need to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And this is an invitation, again, to look to the cross and to find the cleansing that you can have, that any individual can have through looking to Jesus Christ and the shed blood of the cross, washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb of God, to put away our shame and to find the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is pushing them back to the cross and to consider the gospel. by white garments. And thirdly, by salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, Laodicea, I, I think I mentioned this already, had this, maybe I didn't, it was, had this medical school there. And so it was well known in the ancient world for having this medical school. And one of the developments that came out of Laodicea was this, this salve, this cream, this balm that they would put on their eyes. And it, it, it had success in helping people with eye ailments of all kinds. And so when Jesus talks about this in the letter, again, it's something they would know. Oh yeah, like we, we do that here in Laodicea. But Jesus' point is, we're all born spiritually blind. Sin clouds our vision. And I immediately, looking at this verse, I immediately thought about John 9 and this this, um, story where Jesus heals this blind man, and and he, 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 um, he, he begins the healing process, but then sends the man away, so that by the time the man actually receives his sight, Jesus isn't there anymore. But the man goes to the temple, and he sees the religious leaders, and he can now see, and he's being questioned by the religious leaders, and it becomes really difficult. It becomes like an inquisition of this man. They don't want to believe that Jesus has healed anyone. But the man offers as evidence one line. He simply says, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I love the simplicity of that answer and how convicting it is because you can't deny the evidence of a transformed life. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Now the context, again, was physical healing. But when Jesus later met up with him and they had a conversation about these things, Jesus made it clear that it wasn't about the physical healing of his sight, but about spiritual blindness. And he led that man to faith. And the man said this in John 9, 38. He said, Lord, I believe. He not only had his physical sight restored, but he saw spiritually for the very first time and committed his life to belief in Jesus Christ. And that's where Jesus took it. In verse 39, in fact, Jesus said, this is in John 9, for judgment I came into this world. That judgment is the dividing of sheep and goats, the dividing of believers and unbelievers. That those who do not see may see. Those who are unsaved might be converted. And those who see religiously, a a sarcastic little comment, those who see or think they see may become blind or realize they're blind. Now in all three little bits of counsel that Jesus is giving to them here, he's pointing them to the life-giving gospel. That's what he's saying they need to buy. You need need to buy the gospel. Not that we can buy it in the sense that we normally think of these things, but that we must acquire it, and that we must see him as the sole source of this valuable gospel. In fact, this same language is used later in Revelation in chapter 21 and chapter 22, where we buy or acquire this salvation, and the phrasing in those two chapters is, we buy it without price. We buy it without payment because Jesus made the payment in his own blood on the cross. Now, listen, the Laodicean Christians needed to return to what originally brought that church into being. When they first established their faith, they needed to come back to Jesus, his life, his ministry, his teaching his sacrificial death on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the tomb. And the wisest counsel anyone could ever receive as we're thinking about the counsel that Jesus is offering here, the wisest counsel anyone could ever receive is to believe the gospel and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, amen? That's it, that's it. That we need to listen and receive counsel from the faithful and true witness to all of these things all right, let's keep going. How are you doing so far? Seven-point message. It's amazing, right? You're going to be able to go away from here and go, we survived a seven-point message. It's awesome. I don't even know what number we're on. I don't number them. The one to whom we must give ourselves fully notice, um, knowing his heart for us. As we hear all of these things, now the letter begins to take a little bit of a turn. We want to know the heart that Jesus has for us. He's delivered some very hard truths to this church, but then he tenderly adds this in verse 19. Those whom I love, the word love there is, is the Greek word phileo. It's the, it's the love that's rooted in relationship. He's appealing to the relationship they once had, saying that's the kind of love, the family love I want to have for you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I I love you, Jesus says. I love you, and that's why I'm saying these hard things, because there's some things you need to know. I can't leave you as you are. I love you too much to leave you as you are. The way to blessing, Jesus says, is to be zealous, to be zealous, to be passionate about these things, to give yourself fully to them, and to repent, to, to agree with the wise counsel that he's giving to us, and to, and to turn to change our lives, to turn back to the Lord and his word. That message is inherently loving. And again, it's, it's, it's all framed inside this picture of the parenting relationship and parental discipline that's necessary in every home parenting imagery that is throughout the entire scriptures. And, 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 and this particular phrasing by Jesus rooted in Proverbs 3 that most of us will be familiar with. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, our Our family relationships, the structures that we have here are an echo of the family relationships that exist in eternity with our heavenly father. We are his adopted sons and daughters if we are in Christ. And like any good parent, God disciplines us for our good. We not like it, just like our children don't like it when we discipline them, but God disciplines us for our good. It is not loving to ignore, excuse or facilitate another person's sin. When we apply this to our own human families, if we follow God's example here, the way this plays out in our human families is with permissive, child-centered parenting. And I just want to say, based on what we're reading here, Permissive, child centered parenting is inherently unloving, even if it's couched in, in doing what's best for the child. Your child does not know what's best for him or her. Just as we, as, as, the, as the human children of our Heavenly Father, we don't know what's best for us. And we will constantly make excuses for ourselves. God knows what's best for us, and he's the perfect parent. We don't know what's best for us. We need to lean into his counsel and his discipline. If God were to parent us permissively, we would all perish in hell. And parents, you can draw whatever application of that you want into your own parenting because there are implications there. And so God's discipline, we need to hear this. God's discipline is a tangible indication of his love for us. He's not being punitive for the sake of punishment alone, not for revenge, not simply for judgment. He wants to get us us to a better place. He wants to get this Laodicean church that, that, that doesn't, have anything commendable about it, he's still appealing to them to bring them to a better place. All right, here's another one. We give ourselves, just two more to go, we give ourselves fully to him by opening the door to his abundant grace. Now in verse 20, Jesus says to the church, it's a famous verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now I'm about to offend a lot of you. Because more often than not, this verse is very poorly interpreted. And the poor interpretation is translated into artwork that may be on the walls of some of your homes. So that's why you may have to go home and take artwork down after this. Message. But too often this verse is used evangelistically as if Jesus is knocking on the door of a person's heart that he's inviting them to invite him to come into the house into their house into their life but to see it that way rips it from its context in fact, so pervasive is this wrong view, and here's the this is the most classic of all of the artwork pieces that are out there, but this one, and I'll give you the name of the artist, his name is Warner Salman, and the title of the piece is Christ at Heart's Door, and it is indeed based on Revelation 3.20. It's based on another piece of art that was older, and then if you search this, Christ at heart's door or Christ knocking on the door, if you search that in Google, you're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens of representations of this piece of art, all of it based on Revelation 3.20, and and all of it kind of giving this sense that this is about an unbeliever inviting Jesus into their life, but that's not it. Because we believe in the context. We believe in taking the verse and seeing it in the context. And the context here, it's not being written to unbelievers who have not yet received the gospel. It's being written to a church that knows the gospel and is rejecting it through the way it's living. This is not an appeal to be saved. This is an appeal to a church to invite Jesus back in because they've shut him out. He's not writing to individual believers who need the gospel, but to a church of professing believers who know the gospel. The need to repent of their willful self sufficiency. To extend the metaphor, they've locked Jesus out of their church, and he's saying, I'm in the parking lot, and the doors are locked, and you're doing church in here, I'm not there. Go ahead and keep the art if you have it in your house. But just remember, every time you see it, now it's not about inviting an unbeliever to salvation. Every time you see it, now you're going to remind yourself, have I shut Jesus out? Do I need to repent? Is Jesus outside the door knocking, trying to get in? Because that's the point of the verse. To Christians, who have shut him out. Graciously, graciously, graciously knocking on the door to let them know that they can invite them back in. It's a gracious act on Jesus' part. So stop seeing it in terms of unbelievers. Start to see it as a reminder to you and to me as Christians. Do I need to open the door? Do I need to accept him back into, to receive him back into the fellowship that we once had? All right, one more. We give ourselves fully to him by obtaining eternal blessings from him. And God's kind enough, um, and I think pretty much everybody here would say this. God is kind enough to shower us, shower us with many eternal blessings, earthly blessings, but there's no guarantee of earthly blessings. Many of us have received these earthly blessings, and we are, relatively speaking, wealthy people. But there's no guarantee of that. And, and when we fixate on, on how well life is going here, when, when we think somehow that these blessings have come to us because of something we've done, or we have some modified prosperity gospel that's ringing about inside of our heads that somehow we deserve what God has given to us, when those things get pulled away, when we lose sight of eternity, we can become disillusioned with God if we lose any of that. That's why God doesn't want us to be fixated on earthly wealth. The Laodicea was a self-sufficient church that didn't need Christ. They were a reflection, as we said, of the city that they lived in, And they had given themselves over to that culture. And Jesus says, you need to conquer that. You need to overcome that. Verse 21, he says, to the one, the one who conquers, he says, the one who conquers, the one who surrenders, in this case, surrenders their self-sufficiency, will receive something far better than the best of what's offered on earth. but this is going to require ruthless examination of our life to deal with these issues. Conquering is not easy. And we are terribly self-sufficient. We're so, so buried deep within this. Saw so a friend, pastor, um, a guy I had some seminary classes with uh, back in the day. He's a pastor at Wilmer Heights Baptist in Toronto. And I saw him post this. Uh, last week, the one who, here's what he says, you won't conquer, you won't conquer what you won't confront. This, This is a confrontational letter. Jesus is laying it out there for us. But we'll never be the one who conquers and gets to the better place unless we confront the issues that are actually happening in our life. Conquering here is deciding to be hot or cold for Jesus. Not being lukewarm. Conquering here is being fully for him. And if we will not confront our lukewarmness, there will be no conquering. God will spew us out of his mouth. But if we reverse that, if we conquer, there's eternal blessings that come. Namely, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Co-regency with God in the eternal kingdom. And then Jesus gives the example as I also conquered, I conquered. He conquered the cross, conquered death and the grave. As I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, you're listening? He who has an ear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, what the Spirit says to Laodicea, what the Spirit is saying to our church, what the Spirit is saying to me, and to you. Jesus is the faithful and true witness of all these things. Let's give ourselves fully to Him. Amen. Amen.